right, good morning. Let's take our Bibles and go back to Daniel chapter 7. Two weeks ago, we made it to the, about the midpoint of Daniel 7, so uh, we're going to continue through the rest of the chapter this morning, but we'll begin with some review um, of what we've learned so far. Let's pause for just a word of prayer first. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you that you gave us the gift of music and we get to sing together into you like that. And thank you for the bread of life. And so we come now to the living word, to the word of Christ, trusting that this is soul-nourishing, life-giving, even unto eternity. Nothing else on earth can achieve the second birth, as we just sang. So we look in hope now toward you and your spirit and your word and your power and your life-giving spiritual work. We seek to open our hearts up to that, to, have, to be soft soil for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. So God gave this dream at the time when the last ruler of Babylon, Belshazzar, had begun to reign. And the question that Daniel and all the Jews would have been asking was, what does our future hold? What's coming? They had been sent to Babylon to exile as discipline for their sin. But now that Babylon was going to fall, what would come next? Well, the answer was depicted in a very vivid dream. Verse 2, Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea different from one another. So what would the future be like for the people of God? The world they lived in would be like a turbulent sea whipped up by the winds of heaven, and out from that turbulent sea would come four violent, beastly world empires who would rule over them, Babylon and then three more. Now, if we skip down to verse 7, special emphasis was placed on the fourth empire and especially a boastful ruler who arises out of that empire. Verse 7, after this, I saw in the night visions and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. Later in the chapter, we... Uh, well, let's continue, actually. I, verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. 
And later in the chapter, we learn that that little horn is a boastful ruler who tries to destroy the people of God. And in Daniel's vision, it seemed certain that that terrible ruler was going to succeed until Daniel suddenly saw another scene in heaven, a throne room, which was also like a terrifying courtroom. The judge was the ancient of days. His appearance was holy and eternal, unlike any other judge. His throne pouring out fire while an uncountable crowd of servants and witnesses looked on. And the the court was convened there, and the books of evidence were opened, and the boastful, persecuting little horn and his kingdom were immediately judged and sentenced and executed by fire. And so in our first message from Daniel chapter 7, we talked about, can you fill in the blank? We talked about the comfort of judgment the comfort of judgment. But then Daniel saw another scene in his vision. It was the same courtroom slash throne room, but someone else was brought in before the Ancient of Days, someone who looked like a human yet came in the clouds as God. Verse 13, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. So you'd think this was like the next defendant in the courtroom, but actually, verse 14, we find out this isn't another trial. This is a coronation, verse 14. And to him, this next son of man that comes to the throne, to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away in his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. And so our second sermon from Daniel 7 was called The Coronation of the Son of Man. It's quite a mystery here. Who could be Son of Man, truly human, and God coming on the clouds? What king can have his coronation ceremony at the throne of the Ancient of Days in heaven, rule a truly universal kingdom, never be defeated, and never die? All of that seems impossible until you meet Jesus, who has always been the eternal God, God the Son, yet born as a human baby, lived a human life, truly a son of man, died a human death, fully God, fully man. His coronation ceremony was at the throne of God in heaven. He rules and will truly rule a universal kingdom as Lord of heaven and earth. He can't ever be defeated. He'll crush all the nations with a rod of iron. And having defeated death, he'll never die. He holds the keys of death and of hell. So in a world full of beasts, what we do is we turn our eyes upon Jesus. Doesn't that seem like a great way to end Daniel 7 right there? So why is there another half a chapter? What else happens here? Verse 15, as for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious and the visions of my head alarmed me. So even though there are very comforting truths in those first 14 verses, there are also some frightening realities about the future for God's people. And this is actually, verse 15 is just the first of several times in the last chapters of Daniel that we're going to see how hard it was on him to receive these visions and to try to understand the future for the people of God. Verse 16, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. 
look back for just a second at verse 10. This is describing that throne room, courtroom, and see that the middle of verse 10 says, a thousand thousand served him, and 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. So apparently in his vision, Daniel spoke to one of those people, probably an angel, don't know for sure, but that's most likely. So verse 16 again, I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. Verse 17, here it is. These four beasts, four great beasts, are four kings who shall arise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. And that's the end of the interpretation. Well, that was short. So verse 17 says the four beasts are four kings. We already knew that. And, and Daniel already knows that king, kings and kingdoms are interchangeable here, four, four kingdoms or earthly kings. But verse 17, no details given about any of them, no explanation at all. The interpreting, the interpreter just gets right to the end of the story. Verse 18, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. So if you want to know the point of Daniel 7, it's right there in verse 18. That's the point. The saints possess the kingdom. And that's actually brand new in the book of Daniel, that theme. And it's kind of startling, and it's very important since it's apparently the whole point. So we're going to come back to verse 18 in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to talk through the rest of chapter 7 so that we have the whole picture of this chapter. So remember what we've had in chapter 7 so far. First, Daniel has this dream or this vision about the future of the people of God. Four beasts, one ruler in particular arises from them. And then the throne room of God is this courtroom, and the beast is judged and destroyed. And then in the second scene, one like a son of man comes to the same throne and is crowned the eternal king. And then Daniel's very distressed, and he asks for an interpretation, and this interpreter says, here's the point, four, four kings, and then the saints possess the kingdom forever. And so, verse 19 then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast. <laughs> okay, this is very relatable. Daniel got an interpretation. The interpreter told him, okay, here's the point. And Daniel said, okay, uh, this is in my own words, but Daniel says, okay, thank you. Um, I have more questions. <laughs> I'd really like to know more about this fourth kingdom and what's going to happen to the people of God under that fourth beast empire. So in verses 19 through 22, Daniel actually recounts more of the vision as he asks for more explanation. This is part of what we were talking about in Bible study two weeks ago. It can be a little confusing because he recounted the vision earlier. Now he recounts it again, and we get a little bit more detail this time. So let's read verses 19 through 22 as Daniel recounts part of the vision again to ask for more information. Verse 19, then I desired to know the truth about the fourth, fourth beast, which was different from all the rest, exceedingly terrifying, with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet, and about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. 
until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High, and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Okay, so what happens after Daniel... So, so that's all a question, right? Daniel's saying, okay, look, this is what I saw in the vision, and I'm asking for more information about this. And what happens next is that in verses 23 through 27, the interpreter does give Daniel some more explanation. But um, just a couple comments on verses 19 through 22 first. Um, so in verse 19, we read that the fourth beast was unique in its ferocity. Um, one of the, several of these things we already know, but one of the new things in verse 19 is claws of bronze. Well, metal claws are a pretty nasty feature for an animal to have. And so it devours and it breaks in pieces and it smashes things with its feet. This is just picturing earthly king, kingdom that is very violent. Verse 20, it has 10 horns on its head and then another little horn. It starts little, but has a big mouth and ends up greater than the other horns. And then in verse 21, we get some really important new information though we mentioned it a couple weeks ago, we, we cheated ahead. Verse 21, the horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them. So this ruler is not just violent, he is violent against God's people. And in some senses, he succeeds. Verse 22, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High and the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Okay, so that finishes Daniel's recounting of the vision to ask for information. Now, verse 23, thus he said, the interpreter says to Daniel, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms. It shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. Okay, that's not really new information. Verse 24, as for the 10 horns out of this kingdom, 10 kings shall arise. So somehow there's a stage of the fourth empire that involves 10 kings. There's tons of discussion about what that might be, some sort of alliance in, of 10 kings together in one kind of like mega kingdom, maybe. We'll talk about that some more later. Middle of verse 24, and another shall arise after them. This is the little horn. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. So it sounds like an 11th ruler arises, overcomes three of the other 10 kings, and apparently takes control of the entire fourth kingdom. Verse 25 is one of the more important verses in the Bible in terms of the doctrine of the last days. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the law. So you can tell now that we're starting to talk about this character who's often called the Antichrist. And each phrase there at the beginning of verse 25 is very, very important as, as it describes this ruler's arrogance against God, one. Number two, his war against God's people. Number three, his attempt to overthrow times and laws. And then verse 25 continues, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. So this may be talking about what's often called the Great Tribulation. So, as you can tell, we're starting to get into some very complicated things that we could easily spend some months studying, like the Antichrist and the Tribulation and so forth. But um, what I'm trying to do with Daniel first is teach the text um, before I, I jump off and get us 
uh, uh, confused. So let's read the rest of the chapter, and then I'll tell you a little bit about how we're going to tackle this. Verse 26. Okay, so verse 25 has, he's, he's blasphemous, he's attacking the saints, he's trying to change the times and the law for a time, times, and half a time. Verse 26, but the court shall sit in judgment. And we know what court that is, right? We've already learned about it. And his dominion, the little horn's dominion, shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. There's the point again. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. All right, so we've got some really intriguing details there in verses 24 and 25, but then the interpreter goes straight to the point again, which is the saints are going to receive the kingdom. All right, so what do we do here? How do we preach this when there's just way too much to talk about all at once? What I'm trying to do is look for the things that are particularly emphasized in chapter 7 that we don't really find emphasized later in the book of Daniel. So, in other words, the Antichrist, he's brought up here in chapter 7, but does he come up later in Daniel? Yeah, we've got chapters about him. So we're not going to stop and do all that right now. We'll wait until we get that later information and then touch back on this. Um, the Great Tribulation, the persecution of the saints, the time, times, and half a time, all that. We've got lots more information coming, so I'm not going to try to park on those things right now. So what we'll do is, rather than reaching ahead in the book right now while we're in chapter 7, we'll continue ahead in the book in our study, and then we'll reach back to chapter 7 um, when we get to some of those things. So with the rest of our time this morning, we want to talk about what is really unique here, and that is the saints possessing the kingdom, because that isn't really directly mentioned anywhere else in Daniel, though there are some things that relate to it. So let's just settle in with the rest of our time and, and talk about that. So remember verse 18, this was the interpreter's summary of the whole point. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. This is pretty surprising. Now, the kingdom idea is not surprising. We've had that a lot of times already. We've already learned about four kingdoms replaced by the kingdom of God. What's surprising is that the saints receive the kingdom, because what we've seen so far is that Jesus receives the kingdom. Back in chapter 2, remember the four kingdoms are obliterated by a stone, who is very likely Jesus. And here in chapter 7, who comes and receives the kingdom. It's the Son of Man who comes on the clouds as God. It's Jesus. So we've had Jesus as the king in the fifth kingdom receiving that final kingdom. And now suddenly we get to this summary and the, the, the kingdom, the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. What? The word saints could also be translated holy ones. Some people think it's referring to angels, but verse 27 says this is people. Verse 27 says, the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. 
which probably means the people who are the saints of the Most High, who are the holy ones that we're referring to here. So, God's people receive the kingdom, but they don't just receive it. There was a certain British prime minister who recently received a kingdom, sort of, but look at verse 18, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and, what's the word? Possess. They're going to possess the kingdom. They're going to keep the kingdom that they receive. And how long are they going to possess it for, verse 18? Forever, forever and ever. Miller says this literally reads, to the forever and to the forever of forevers. I think he's trying to make a point. One of the things that tells us is that there has to be resurrection for the saints. You can't reign forever if you're going to die. They will be raised to live forever and given a kingdom that they will possess to the forever and to the forever of forevers. So what's going on here? If it was the son of man who received the kingdom in verses 13 and 14, how is it that the saints receive the kingdom in verse 18? There's a hint of the answer here in Daniel 7. And then the New Testament makes it very clear. The answer is this on the back of your handout if you want to fill it in. How can God's people receive the kingdom? It is because Jesus shares his reign with his people. Jesus shares his reign with his people. It's not that we receive the kingdom instead of Jesus, but that Jesus receives the kingdom and then shares it with us as his people. So the place in Daniel 7 that you actually see a little, a little hint of that is in verse 27. Look with me again at that verse. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Now, watch. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey Him. Isn't it interesting how the verse switches from plural to singular, both talking about the kingdom? And those words at the end of verse 27, all dominions shall serve and obey him. Those words describe complete obedience and even worship. That word serve at the end of verse 27 is used back in chapter 3 for serving the gods of Babylon. This is worship that we're talking about. So it wouldn't make sense to say that all the kingdoms of the earth worship and obey you, right? We wouldn't say that. So the beginning of verse 27 says, the saints possess the kingdom. The kingdoms are given to the saints. But then it switches back to Jesus, the one who shares the kingdom with us. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey him. He takes his, in the purest sense, the kingdom belongs only to Jesus. And certainly the complete obedience and worship belong only to Jesus. But he takes his kingdom rights and blessings and he shares them with his people while still maintaining his rightful place as the one worshipped king of kings. So the point here is that Jesus shares his reign with his people. So let me just briefly summarize for you what the New Testament says about that. Revelation chapter 20 speaks about the thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. And when it refers to those who were martyred, 
before that, it says they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, that may be referring to a specific group of people, but if we look other places in the New Testament, we see that it's true more broadly of all of God's faithful people. Matthew 25, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Luke 12, fear not little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Romans 8, 17, if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. 2 Timothy 2, if we endure, we will also reign with him. James 2, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? 1 Corinthians chapter 3 speaks about how we are heirs of all things. All things are yours. And Romans 4.13 talks about how we follow the pattern of Abraham who became heir of the world by faith. And in Matthew 5.5, Jesus said, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. Wow. It's hardly a, a, like a, a minor theme, right? It's actually really clearly strongly emphasized. And in addition to those passages, there are all of the warnings like, like we had in Galatians 5, but there are like five different of ones of these in the New Testament that talk about those who won't inherit the kingdom of God, which implies that those who are truly belong to Christ will inherit the kingdom of God. So once, once we've looked, so if we're, if we're just reading Daniel 7 by itself, verse 18 is like a big shock. But if we're looking at the New Testament, Daniel 7, 18 is not a shock anymore because it's so clear that Jesus shares his kingdom reign with his people. Now, we could stop at that point. We should stop and ask, what kingdom are we talking about? And this is where Christians have historically disagreed. Um, some Christians would put the emphasis on Christ's spiritual kingdom in the church today his spiritual reign. Some would put the emphasis on the thousand-year millennial kingdom on earth someday, and some would put the emphasis on the final eternal kingdom in new heavens and new earth. And I'm just going to say that biblically, believers share in the reign of Christ in all three of those ways. So, first of all, we do share in Christ's reign in a spiritual sense right now today. For example, Christ has triumphed over sin and hell and death. And so you, in some ways, share in that triumph. Like that's why Paul can say in Romans 6 that sin it no longer has dominion over you because you, you share in the reign of Christ. The fear of death is no longer your master. The threat of hell no longer has any power against you. Your body is going to die, but it's only going to bring you to Christ. And even Satan himself is limited in what he can do to you because Christ broke his power at the cross. So like uh, with the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, you can mock death. Or you can do what Paul does in Romans chapter 8. And he says, you, you can look right in the eye of tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And you can look right in the eye of those things and say, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Christ. That sounds like 
Christ took his triumph, his victory, his rule, his reign, and shared it with you because he has. So in some senses, we already share in Christ's reign today. Then there is also a coming earthly kingdom. Now, some Christians respectfully disagree about that, but I believe, and I think Daniel supports the belief that there is a future thousand-year reign of Christ on this earth that's often called the millennium. And so some of those promises about reigning with Christ may specifically have to do with the millennium. Um, that, that thousand year reign of Christ will especially fulfill promises made to Israel. And so it, it may well be that believing Jews will have a special role to play. Maybe they'll be involved even with the actual earthly carrying out of Christ's government on earth. Um, I don't know for sure. So believers share in the reign of Christ spiritually today. They will share in the earthly reign of Christ someday, but neither of those things is the final destination. It's only in the new heavens and the new earth that the kingdom promises find their ultimate fulfillment. So how are you going to reign with Christ once God has made all things new? And it's really a fascinating question because I don't think very many of you would say, I get to be a politician for all of eternity? Woohoo! Can't wait. For some of you, that would be your idea of heaven, but not most of you. So does this mean that we're all going to be politicians for all of eternity? No, it does not mean that um, at all. I think that the answer is found by thinking back to Genesis chapter 1. God created man in his own image, and then he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. So God created man to rule his creation on his behalf for his glory. And so how did we do with that? And we totally messed it all up by sin, right? So through Christ on the new earth, we're finally going to get to really fulfill that purpose. We will live out humanity as it's supposed to be lived. We will use creation as we should and take care of one another as we should. We'll use our gifts and our abilities and our experiences to bless others and to promote human flourishing. Some of you listen to the podcast, The World and Everything in It, and I didn't hear this myself, but I was told that this week in one of the episodes, there was a segment about a pen maker who handcrafts some really remarkable custom-carved wooden pens. When you think of reigning with Christ in the eternal kingdom someday, I think it wouldn't be too bad to picture a craftsman making gorgeous one-of-a-kind wooden pens. In other words, when we say that you're going to reign with Christ someday, we're not saying you're going to spend eternity as a politician or pushing papers in a bureaucracy somewhere. We're saying that with the complete triumph of over all sin and suffering through Christ, we will then be able to live in line with our created purpose in our own unique ways, we'll each be able to exercise dominion like Adam and Eve were supposed to do in the first place. We'll all be, in our own ways, we'll all be part of making life what it's supposed to be. Does that make sense? Which is to reign over God's creation with Christ, to exercise the dominion for which he created humanity in the first place. We'll all be part of making the world full of peace and delight and beauty and creativity and worship and love forever. That's God's intended purpose for creating 
human beings, and that will bring Him great glory, and that will bring us great joy forever. And all that's possible through Christ alone, right? So, I think that that is what it will mean. I, I mean, we speak as a fool, right? We're talking about <laughs> eternal heaven, but based on what we see in Scripture, I think that's a very good guess of what it means that we will reign with Christ forever in new heavens and new earth. Will you turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 12? We don't have time to explore the context of this section in Hebrews 12, um, but if you're not familiar with the second half of Hebrews chapter 12, I'd encourage you to maybe take a study Bible and this afternoon just spend some time, just read through Hebrews 12, 18 through 29 and just read the study Bible notes on it and meditate on this some. It is an amazing passage. And the point of the book of Hebrews is don't leave Christ. Don't give up on Jesus. No matter how hard it gets, no matter how difficult the path is, no matter how intense the persecution is, look at the treasure you have in Christ and hold on to Jesus. So we're going to jump right in the middle of the section. Hebrews 12, verse 26 says, At that time, his voice shook the earth. Okay, that's referring to Mount Sinai when God came down and shook the earth. Now keep reading. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. Yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So when God shook Mount Sinai, it stayed there. Mount Sinai survived the shaking. But someday, God's going to shake all of creation so drastically that it will not survive it because the old must go away so that he can create new heavens and a new earth. But something will survive that great shaking. What is it? Verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. As we were just saying, to be an heir with Christ is to be heir of new heavens and new earth, an heir of eternity, the new world, the eternal age. That's what you have received. It's your possession in Christ. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. When we consider that the God who is a consuming fire has chosen to make us heirs of his eternal kingdom, we worship with reverence and awe. Could you go back with me to Daniel 7? I forgot to tell you we were going back. Keep a marker in Hebrews 12 so we can come back here too. <laughs> but back to Daniel 7. Be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. 
Worship God with reverence and awe because this God, the one who has given us a kingdom, is a consuming fire. Daniel 7, verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. Verse 11, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. It is a terrifying, fiery judgment scene. And remember the end of verse 10, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So what if it was us standing there before that fiery judgment seat, before that God who is a consuming fire? We are guilty sinners, all of us. So we really should be consumed too, just like that beast. But look at verse 21. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. What? Judgment was given for the saints. Not judgment against us, but judgment for us. What happened? How can it be that the holy ancient of days who has the books with the records of everything we can't hide, how can it be that the ancient of days render, renders judgment in our favor? And you know the answer. It's Jesus, right? It's because Jesus bore the penalty for our sin. On the cross, he was judged and condemned for us. Judgment was against Jesus on the cross. He was forsaken by God. The fire of God's wrath fell spiritually on Jesus. God looked at Jesus on the cross and said, you are guilty, not guilty of his own sin, guilty of our sin, which he bore in our place. And, it's, and so it's because Jesus was condemned by the Ancient of Days for us that the Ancient of Days now looks at us and calls us holy ones and renders judgment for us and gives us the kingdom together with Christ. We come into that courtroom of that fiery God and we discover that he is our father and we are his children and we are royalty with Christ. We are all heirs. All things are ours. We belong in that throne room. The new world, the eternal shalom, when everything is the way it's supposed to be, is all yours. You inherit the kingdom to the forever and to the forever of forevers. And so here is a guess, just a guess. But I really think Hebrews 12, beginning in there where we, where we started reading in verse 26, I really think that the author of Hebrews had Daniel on his mind. And I've, I, I went and looked through several commentaries on Hebrews, and I didn't see somebody else, I didn't see anybody else mentioning it, so I'm a little hesitant to mention it. But when you put together the God who was a consuming fire with the saints receive the kingdom, it's like mur, 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 Daniel 7 all over it. And so it's, it's almost as if he was 
the author of Hebrews was looking at Daniel 7, and he's thinking about Jewish people who had come to faith in Christ, and now we're like, oh, I don't know if this was worth it. This following Jesus thing is so hard. The persecution is so hard. Judaism was so comfortable. I had my friends, had my family, had my synagogue, had everything I needed. I just don't know if I should keep trying to go with this Jesus thing. The author of Hebrews is thinking about those people, and he's reading Daniel 7, and he's thinking about all that we have in Jesus and how that one on the Ancient of Days makes us forgiven, holy ones, his son, heirs together with Christ. And so he takes the language of Daniel 7 and he puts it right here into Hebrews 12. You know, earlier in the chapter, verse 1, therefore, Hebrews, I'm sorry, can you go back to Hebrews 12? Hebrews 12, 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Verse 7, it is for discipline that you have to endure. Verse 12, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Verse 18, four. And then he goes into the second half of the chapter in which he ends up exalting Jesus as the one who has given us the kingdom. And so his conclusion at the end is verse 28, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Brothers and sisters, you need this because when you look around, you're seeing such a mess. And you may be feeling like the cost to follow Jesus is more and more difficult. And the temptations are greater and greater to just fit in with the spirit of the age and just do what will make everything easy. And he is saying, oh, look at what you have in Christ. Because you see this world shaking, don't you? And what the Bible tells you is that it's not going to survive the shaking. But if you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken, including the new world when everything is going to be the way it's supposed to be forever, and you're going to be like an active part of that, that is a reason to be grateful. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, but don't take it for granted. Remember the fiery throne. And so it continues in verse 28, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. You know, one of the things that will make you effective in sharing the gospel with other people is being in awe that the Ancient of Days on that throne calls you a holy one, forgives you, welcomes you, makes you his child, and gives you a kingdom. Awe will make you a humble sharer of the gospel, and you'll be able to tell other people, it's incredible what God has done for me in Christ. 
and He will do the same for you. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Let's pray. Father, thank you for all that you are for us in Christ Jesus. Thank you for the grace that gave us the greatest gift. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for adoption. Thank you for new birth. Thank you for the empty tomb, resurrection, eternal life that is already in our hearts today. The promise of a day when you're going to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. The promise of a day when you're going to make all things new. The promise that we get to live out that eternal kingdom with joy and meaning. Ruling your creation for our joy and for your glory. Therefore, we want to be grateful and we want to be worshipers and we pray for reverence and awe. Oh God, how easily we drift away from those things and our hearts become kind of cold or calloused or we take the gospel for granted and we get so worked up at the sinners around us that we forget that you, as a consuming fire, forgave us. Would you grant us some restoration of reverence and awe and gratefulness today for all that you've done for us in Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.